Well, good morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we pray that you will meet us now during this time. If we are here and we are struggling, feeling the weight of the world around us, the weight of our lives, Father, meet us and give us encouragement. Father, if we are here today and we are feeling burdened by just our struggles and about the day-to-day existence of life, I pray, Lord, that you meet us through your word and your spirit to remind us of your son. And Father, if we're just here and we're kind of not sure how we feel, we're kind of apathetic maybe or numb to you now, Lord, uh, help us to see the joy that is set before us because of what Jesus did for us. In your holy name, amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series in the Apostles' Creed. We, as a church, this fall have been looking at this ancient profession of faith and able to help us see what are the essentials for us to believe as a church. I think this creed is really good for us to look at together. It is good to be reminded of what are the things we should affirm and believe. The creed, I believe, helps us get the right perspective on what matters most when it comes to God, to Jesus, and to our faith. This creed helps us know where we are in our faith and where we are going in our faith. This creed uh, is kind of like one of those maps that you find at a shopping mall. Recently, this past weekend, last weekend, I was away out of town with my wife, and as we were killing time before our flight back home, we went to one of these large outlet malls. We had never been there before, and we were walking down these rows and rows of stores. My wife was going into many of them. I just kept walking. We got eventually to this area where there was a chance for us to go to the right or the left or straight or back. We went into a store right in that section, and when we came out of the store, we were a little turned around. We weren't really sure where we had come from, where we were going, uh, what, what our next destination should be. But thankfully, there was one of those maps, you know, the map that shows the whole layout of the mall with a little star that says, you are here. We were able to know, okay, this is where we are, so that means this is where we came from, and this is where we want to go. I think the creed is, is, is a little bit like that in our lives. The creed is a marker for us to ground us in our faith, to know where we are going, and to know where we've come from. And this morning, we are continuing in this section on the creed where we're looking at what the creed says about Jesus. We've been looking for the last few weeks on the topic of Jesus in the creed, We first heard that Jesus is God's only son. Then we heard that Jesus is our Lord. And then last week, Pastor Aaron talked about that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And today, I am continuing along in this sermon series on the section in the Creed that says, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Now you might notice that the creed jumps from the beginning of our Messiah's human life to the end. I mean, if you read the Gospels, we see a lot about Jesus that we don't find in the creed. Jesus was an amazing teacher. People would go for miles to come hear him speak. Jesus performed many amazing miracles and healed many people. Jesus was known as one who reached out to the outcasts of society and fought against the religious, self-righteous leaders of his day. And these things are all important about Jesus. But that's not what we find in the creed. The creed only mentions his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. 
because these are the important essentials for knowing what we need to believe about Jesus. His incarnation, his death and resurrection are the truths we must know to believe about salvation. So for our topic today on Jesus being crucified, dead, and buried, I've chosen a section from the Apostle Paul's great letter to the Church of Rome. And we're going to look at Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. You can follow along in a Bible, in the order of worship, or you could just listen as I read. Paul writes these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. This is God's word, and it is given to us for our good. This passage I just read, I think, is a great passage to talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This passage, I think, is a great passage that talks about the power of justification in our life. This passage is an amazing passage about the undeserving love and mercy offered to us. This passage is all about grace. I was thinking a lot about grace as I was working on this sermon this week, and it made me think about probably one of the most famous hymns of all time. Whether you have been a part of a church your whole life or you're new to church, many people know the hymn Amazing Grace. Most think it is the most popular hymn of all time. I mean, it's been recorded over 7,000 times and sung by such artists like Aretha Franklin, Billy Ray Cyrus, and the lead singer of Aerosmith. It is a great and well-known hymn for sure. But there's something that I realized this week I never really thought about in regards to this hymn. Nowhere does the hymn Amazing Grace mention the cross of Jesus. In fact, it doesn't even mention Jesus at all. Now, it is a good hymn, and I still like it, but, and I am also confident that John Newton, the author of that hymn, knew and believed in Jesus and the cross and definitely wrote about it. But it was just interesting for me to think about this hymn about the amazing grace of God doesn't mention the way of the cross to receive this grace. The cross is essential for us to believe and understand, and it is why it is in our creed. Author and Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She writes, Without the cross the center of the Christian proclamation, the Jesus story can be treated as just another story about a charismatic spiritual figure. It is the crucifixion that marks out Christianity as something different in the history of religion. It is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. Now, just about everyone, whether they know just a little bit about Christianity or a lot, most know that Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross. And most historians from the first century to the present day believe that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died on a Roman cross early in A.D. first century. Many people in the first century A.D. died on a cross. This was the common punishment of the Roman world. 
But the fact about Jesus dying, the fact there was a man named Jesus dying, isn't what I want to focus on today. But rather, why does Jesus' death matter to us? Why, in whatever you're going through in your life, whatever things are going on in your mind that are distracting you right now, whatever struggles and joys you're experiencing in your day-to-day life, how does the cross impact you at all today? What is the meaning and the significance of the cross, not just when we worship on Sunday, but as we live our lives throughout the week? So with those questions in mind, I want to jump into our passage together with you. We're in chapter 5 of the book of Romans, and already Paul has been talking about how God created a good world that rebelled against him. And that God makes promises to his rebellious people, but they're not interested in God at all. So Paul begins to ask the question, how will God deal justly with the people's rebellion? How does God deal with people he loves that reject the love he offers? And the answer really is quite stunning. As he moves into this section, chapter 5 through chapter 8, he really talks about the unexpected nature of God's response to our rebellion. Our first verse has these words, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now in order for us to truly appreciate the stunning response of God, to truly understand the unexpected acceptance and love that God offers us, we must understand who we are before God. We must see who we truly are in order to see the amazing love of God displayed on the cross. This description of us here in this section says that we are weak or helpless. That we are ungodly, which means living more for ourselves than for God. Later on in verse 8, he calls us sinners, those who have fallen short of God's standards. And in verse 10, he calls us God's enemies, hostile to God and his authority in our lives. Now some, and perhaps you would put yourself in this category, are uncomfortable with the negative way we are described here. As a pastor, I have had many conversations with folks who think the church is too negative, too pessimistic, that we don't see the good in people. And there might be some truth to that for sure. If you're here today and you're exploring faith in God, being called weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy, doesn't sit right. No doubt there's been abuse by how Christians have used these words to harm and shame others. These words are often seen as very negative and uncomfortable, and I get that. But I also think these words can be seen as positive and hopeful. See, what these words tell us is that we don't have what it takes on our own to save ourselves. That we are powerless to overcome our weakness on our own. None of us in this room, none of us have enough or are enough to overcome our faults and our failures. Before we ever make a move, God does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And this is why these words are positive and hopeful if we believe them. And not only that, but what is so amazing to grasp is that Christ died not for the good, not for the righteous, not for those that had all their stuff together. God died for those considered enemies of God. 
Christ died for the rebellious and the ungodly. This seems so counterintuitive. That's why Paul continues on to say, basically, it's hard enough to die for someone who is righteous. It's hard enough to die for someone who is good. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love not for the lovely and the good, but the unlovely and the bad. God shows his love not to those who love him, but to those who reject his love. God shows his love to the broken, his needy, and undeserving. God shows his love to us. And in thinking about this amazing truth and this understanding of God's love displayed towards us, I began to think about one of my favorite paintings, and I looked at it online again and just stared at my computer screen a bit, reflecting upon the painting I love so much. Rembrandt has this painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. You might be familiar with it. It's a painting based on the story that Jesus told about the son who took his father's inheritance and ran away and rebelled against him. And when he was poor and broken and downtrodden, he realized he was going to go back to his father and beg to be a servant of his. But from a long way off, as he's walking towards his father, his father accepts him back as his son and loves him. In the painting, which Rembrandt does so beautifully, you see this father hugging this son. Now, in the story of the prodigal son, the father represents God, and the son represents anyone that rebels against God, so that means the son represents all of us. And in this painting, you see this son in ripped-up, dirty clothes, broken and helpless, gross-looking and disheveled, being embraced by his father. His father did not say to him, go clean up first, and then I will accept you. Go get yourself right, and then I will hug you. No, this painting is an amazing picture of the love of God hugging a dirty, smelly, broken sinner. Look at this painting this week, and remember that that is how God views us. Or if you don't want to look at that painting, just reread the gospel reading that Rachel read for us earlier today. Read about how this guilty criminal was on the cross, deserving of the punishment that he was being given. Next to Jesus dying. And he turns to Jesus and he can offer Jesus nothing. He can give Jesus nothing, but he asks Jesus to remember him when he gets into his kingdom. And our Savior says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you helpless, ungodly sinner, you are going to be with me in paradise. This same offer that was given to the thief on the cross is offered to every one of us today. And listen, there should not be a single aspect of our lives that are not touched by the truth of this grace. Even if we come across, especially on Sunday morning, like we have it all together. Even if we think we have it all together. We know we make mistakes. All of us know we fail at times. All of us, even if we come like we have it all together, know that we have guilt at times. And we screw up at times. And like the prodigal son returning or the thief on the cross asking, we must turn to the Jesus who died for our sins. But so often, what do we do with our guilt and our shame? Some of us rationalize it away. It's not that bad. 
It could be worse. At least I'm not like them. Some of us moralize it away. We make promises to never do it again. We say, I'm going to be good this time. I'm going to work hard for you, God. I'm going to pay you back. Some of us deflect our sin away. We focus so much on everyone else's sin, so we never have to address our own sin. This is my story for sure. I grew up in the church. I was heavily involved in my youth group. I volunteered as a teenager and as a young adult at church. I went to a Bible college. I became a pastor. And yet I still today often treat my sin and weakness as if it's up to me to make it go away. I still today try to rationalize, moralize, and deflect my sin away. And if you are like me at all, you know it doesn't work. The guilt and the shame is still very real in my life, and I'm sure in your life as well. And not only does fixing ourselves or trying to fix ourselves fail us time and time and time again, but also when we're doing this, we miss out on seeing and appreciating God's love for us. When we don't turn to the cross for our sin and our guilt, we miss out on seeing the fullest, most complete expression of God's love given to us. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we are looking at God's love in action. When we look at Jesus on the cross, crucified, dead, and then buried, we see God's love doing the things we can never do ourselves. Our passage today says these amazing words. God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I read somewhere this week that the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love seems to be. Now think about how much this love cost God. His own son's blood. Think about how undeserving we are, how rebellious we are of God, how we reject him and run away from him often. That shows us this love is pretty amazing and great. And we have to ask ourselves, do we understand how great this love is that he gave his son for us? Do we understand it not just more than words we confess, but truth that impacts everything about our lives? Now, I don't know where all of you are at this stage in faith and thoughts about God. But I assume that there are some of you in this room today that are wondering, what does God think about me? Maybe that's why you're here this morning. And maybe when you think about God, you think there is no way God could ever love me. Maybe when you think about all the things you've ever done, or all the things that have been done to you, you think, I am not worthy of anyone's love, let alone God. Maybe you are carrying deep, deep pain and wounds by things you have done and things done to you, and you believe that you could never be the object of anyone's love. Well, if that's you today, I I am sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry if love feels like an impossible reality for you at all. And all I can hope for is that you would see in these words of Paul here in this passage. 
All I can hope is that you would see just a little bit of the words in the rest of Scripture. All I hope is that in a little bit you will see when we take of this meal together, communion, that God has done everything he can to show you he loves you. God has given you his one and only son purely based on the fact that he loves you. God's love is on display in the crucifixion. We're shown deep love and compassion in the cross, and we are shown deep hope and salvation offered to us because of the cross. I mean, because of the cross, we are considered righteous. We are considered justified. We are considered before God in our weakness and in our sin and our brokenness. We are declared right. Even though we still fail, even though we still sin, even though none of us have it all together, God looks at us because of our faith in Jesus and says, you are right before me. You are good. You are like my son. And not only that, but we are promised great hope and much more. Because the verdict that our sins have been taken care of on the cross means not just that our present day life has us considered justified before God, but that in the future we are guaranteed that we will be with God for all eternity. Verse 9 says, Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10 says, While we are enemies, we are reconciled by God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's what Paul is getting at. God has already done the hard part. God has turned us from enemies to friends. God has taken away our sin. God has accomplished what we cannot do, payment on the cross for the sins of the world. How much more then can we be sure that he will keep us till the end? How much more can we be sure if God was willing to send his son for us, that he's willing to stay with us and be with us until he brings us into his kingdom? We can have hope in the midst of our struggles and our sin that death and sin will not win out. May we believe this. As Pastor Aaron said last week in his sermon, Jesus suffered and died and came out the other side, and he does this for one reason, so that people like you and me can follow behind him in faith and make our way to where he is. The hope of this passage, the hope of the gospel, is that we are saved by his life. We are saved and declared innocent even though we are not because he died and rose again for our sins. And listen, I think many of you in this room actually believe this. I think if I were to ask you, you would say, yes, you know that you are saved. You might know the term justification and say, yes, I believe in that. You might say, you know what, I know. The Bible says God loves me, so I know that to be true. You might believe that. But deep down, you still feel like God is a little bit disappointed in you right now. Some of you might have all the answers and might know everything about God and salvation, but you wonder, does God like me? Is God disappointed in me right now? Some of us feel like God just puts up with us, but he isn't really happy with us. And this plays out in a variety of ways, not only with how we interact with God, but how we interact with one another. You see, some of us have that feeling that we aren't liked or loved by God. 
And so we hide our feelings from others. We, we really try hard to act like we have it all together because we're afraid if someone really got to know us, they would see us as the failure we think we are. They would see us as the failure we think God thinks we are. Some of us in this room have to be right all the time. We are so critical of others because we're trying to escape the feeling that God is critical of us. We feel the only way we will feel better about ourselves is if we put people down, because at least we'll feel a little bit up if they are down. Some of us leave conversations we have with one another, and the first thing that comes into our mind is, what is wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why did I say those dumb things? Why can't I be like them? If you could relate to any of that, let me give you an encouraging word from this passage. We talked about justification. It's here in this passage, one of the key foundational words that we are declared right. That it is a, a legal term that Paul uses to describe how in faith we are considered innocent in Christ. But Paul uses another word as well to describe our relationship with God. And it is the word reconciliation. In verse 10, it says that we are reconciled to God. Reconciliation is not a legal term. It's a relational term. It is the bringing together of two people, two parties. I like how one commentary I read put it this week. God picks us up, turns us around, and places us down facing him. Now, as friends, we are at peace with him. God turns towards us and says, hello, friend. This is hard to believe at times. I know I don't believe it, but God doesn't just love us. He actually likes us. When we look at the death of Jesus on the cross, we can know that God wants to be with us, that God wants us near to him, that he wants us in relationship with him. And in love, he provided everything that was needed for this to happen. No wonder Paul ends our section with this call to celebrate and have joy. Our last verse says, More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, the deeply personal reconciliation between the Creator God and human race in and through Jesus must be celebrated and cherished and remembered at all times. It is vital that we keep the cross and the resurrection at the center of our lives. It is vital that we often come to this table of grace and we take of communion to remind us and to be nourished by the death and the resurrection of Jesus, pointing us to the blood and the body of Jesus for our sins. It is vital that we never forget the significance and the meaning of Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried. It gives us life. It gives us hope. It gives us the love and the friendship of our God. Let us pray. Father, may we believe in what Jesus has done. Father, may we believe in your love for us. And Father, may that motivate us to rejoice in you and to celebrate all that you give us. And may we respond with lives of praise and worship 
and service to you and to the world that you created, that you love, and that you died for. In your holy name, amen.